Welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Doing hey. good, doing good. Awesome, awesome. Any, any news, any little tidbits before we get started? I think this week is a uh, new house week, right? Congrats, Adam. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I just I moved into my new house here um, a few days ago, have my nice new office set up. Nice to finally get out of my parents' house, been there for a couple of years trying to save up for this one so glad about that um something else to, to bring up just before we get started i know many many weeks ago way <laughs> a bit too long ago we had covid special our vaccine special what have you today is also going to be a vaccine special because at the time of recording i haven't been vaccinated but by the time the episode comes out i will have been vaccinated i'm going for my covid vaccine tomorrow morning yeah finally uh getting the the johnson and johnson the, the no more tears vaccine uh, <laughs> what, I, what i like to call it so i, get, will, I will not feel like shit i will take the <laughs> johnson and johnson yeah. you can I, go uh, back to uh, spitting in people's mouths like you always do on the people's eyeballs it's gonna be it's gonna be so fun um yeah my, my girlfriend's already she got vaccinated um just over a week ago and so um, I'm looking forward to finally getting vaccinated myself because here in Ireland, we, for opening up of like pubs and restaurants and stuff, for now, they're only letting people who are vaccinated in, um, which is a contentious sort of thing on its own. But um, yeah, at least I can go to uh, have a meal or go to a pub um, after tomorrow, which would be nice because it's been a bit far too long since I've been That's indoors. Good. That's great. Congrats. Congrats. Yeah, looking forward to that anyway. But look, uh, we'll crack into um, crack into the first film of this week, uh, which is the Vim Vendors film from 1987, uh, Wings of Desire, uh, to give it the German title, Der Himmel über Berlin. Um, you'd never know I took six years of German in school. Um, <laughs> just to give a brief synopsis to anyone, any listeners here who haven't seen it, um, and just to give a heads up warning, there's not a lot you can really spoil in this film, so you know, feel free to sort of listen away the whole way through. Uh, even if you haven't seen it, we're not. There's nothing really we can spoil uh, with this kind of film. Uh, basically, an angel tires of overseeing human activity and wishes to become human when he falls in love with a mortal. Um, so, yeah, anyone want to jump in with, with any sort of initial thoughts? Zach, you go first if you don't mind. I'm going to pull up the the issue pictures. I forgot to do it first. <laughs> um. So uh, I'm going to give a little background about my day, and this is going to be relevant to when I started. Um, so I went to go watch this on HBO Max because I could watch it on my TV then. And uh, long story short, that ended up being a disaster trying to get it up. So it got me in a little bit of bad mood trying to get that to work and you know, validated me buying you know, physical media and all that. But I was, I was in a little bit of a sour mood because it took me so long to actually get the movie up to watch it. And uh, so I didn't. I don't think I necessarily went in with the right mindset because as soon as I finished it, I went and saw what you guys kind of rated it on Letterboxd, and I realized I gave it a significantly lower rating than you guys did. Because <laughs> I went in, I really wanted to like it. Like I was like, oh, it sounds cool. I, I love uh, Peter Fox in it. You know, you got Columbo, you got um, Nick Cave, who is one of my favorite musicians. You know, he plays at least a little bit of a part in it. Um, Bruno, I, I'm sure I'm going to say it wrong, but it's 
Gans, Gans. I like him and stuff I've seen him in. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was really looking forward to it, and I just did not connect with it at all. I, I There were parts I really liked, but overall, I just did not connect with the movie at all on any – like, I don't know if it's just, like, I'm not into magical realism as much, and it just kind of felt, like, really – optimistic and maybe i'm just a cynical asshole or i particularly <laughs> was when i watched it and i was just like i just don't care <laughs> i hate to sound like that no that's that's fair um you know like this is definitely a film you need to go into in the right mindset i i came out of it like i didn't watch it when we when it came up in the film clubs i'd only watched it like earlier in the year i think it was back in end of February, start of March. So it was still pretty fresh in my mind anyway. So I decided not to rewatch it because yeah. I wanted to get other stuff watched that week. Um, but I remember just loving it. I was, I was blown away by the film. Uh, magical realism, as you, as you said there, Zach, is definitely the, a great way of describing this sort of a genre. I think the way I described it when I wrote my review, what it, was, it was like sort of equal parts Bergman existentialism and Fellini fantasticism. It kind of has aspects of both. Um, but yeah, I, I love the picture. Um, I, I want to see what Chris says now, which, which sort of side of the fence he falls on. Okay, so just to be objective first, uh, the, the, the they shoot pictures is 218. Um, the highest it was ranked was just 210. And, you know, I think y'all have been around the subs and around, you know, like film discussion for a while. To me, that feels right as far as matching where a lot of people would like put this film, certainly in the top 250, that, that feels right. Um, yeah. yeah. We, we, we talk sometimes about the, some of the subreddits being like an echo chamber sometimes, and this movie is certainly in inside the, the echo chamber. I think people, you know, as they talk about this, there was even a, even though we only did this discussion like what, two weeks ago or something, there's already another post on the Criterion sub that came out like two days ago where somebody was like, just saw Wings of Desire. Oh my gosh. And like, there's like 50 comments or something. People are like, I love it, I love it. Um, so I, when I saw this back in 2001, two-ish, uh, for about probably five or six years after that, I said it was my favorite movie. Uh, I, I really loved it at that time. Um, it was also kind of near the beginning of uh, me branching out into like art house cinema and I think that the fact that it was Zach the word you use magical realism or like whatever that term is I kind of opened my eyes a little bit for like you can do this in a movie like oh my god and like you know like the way that they use voiceover to kind of get the inner thoughts of, of people as the angels were walking love by and, yeah love those yeah words. like they got to hear something that like nobody else heard and there was like a connection there that was deeper than than the people were experiencing even when they were in, you know, kind of real, um, the way it split between black and white and color creatively, that just really like kind of bowled me over. Uh, watching it again, I probably liked it a little bit less. I think in a, in a, in a weird way, I, I found the structure of it a little bit cheesy or hokey this time. And I found myself more being like grateful for the movie for being this thing that like opened the door to me to watch so much more uh art house cinema foreign films like it, you know the reason i'm liking fellini so much in 2021 is probably partially because of when vendors back in 2001 and like the journey that he set me on so like it holds a special place in my heart i love the idea of this movie i love the concept 
it did not land as well with me this time around. Um, uh, but I'll always rate this movie high and, and, and love it, I guess, for the way that you would like a, a long lost relative or something. I don't know. Yeah, I got that. It's it's definitely, I suppose, if if we can only really say one thing about the film, I don't think I don't think anyone can question its creativity. Some people may not enjoy the structure or, you know, certain elements of it. Like you said, maybe hokey or cheesy, some aspects could potentially be seen as, but it's certainly an extremely creative film. Yeah. Like the, the, the parts that you mentioned, you know, as the angels are essentially hovering throughout the streets of Berlin, picking up the thoughts of random people. I, I, I adore those scenes. I even prefer them to the scenes like that actually have people and action. Like I could honestly watch that for like an hour and a half. It's kind of Malachian without the pretension, if, if I could be so bold to say that. Um, I don't know who Terrence Malick fanboys might be trying to burn my house down now after after this comes out. But um, yeah, there even there's something very humanistic, even though the fact that the film is about these sort of supernatural overseeing beings, you know, the fact that they are listening to just the thoughts of normal people is, is very humanistic in, in that sense. And Renders is um, the way he captures that with the sort of low, with the slow zooms and the tracking mm -hmm. shots and everything. It's just gorgeously framed. It, mm -hmm. Like those, those kind of, like, I don't think I've seen as good of a sort of tracking shot implemented outside of either The Shining or an Alain Rene film. You know, those are, those are probably like something like Hiroshima Monomore slash last year in Mariabad, which would use a lot of sort of tracking shots. That along with The Shining are probably the two best uses of tracking shots in film history. Wings of Desire and those sequences is right up there for me, and just in terms of how beautifully controlled the shots are. Um, it's not wholly original, I suppose, maybe be the only bad thing I could say about it. And I didn't even realize this when I was first watching it. I've only realized it this week when I watched um, A Matter of Life and Death, the Powell and Pressburger film. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the sort of, well, I wouldn't say the main concept is similar, but um, the matter of life and, A Matter of Life and Death, just to give it a really sort of brief synopsis, is about this pilot who kind of final destinations himself and the fact that he's, he was supposed to die, but because it was foggy, his angel guide to the afterlife missed him and he ended up surviving and mm -hmm. he has to sort of, you know, defend himself to, make, to say that he should be allowed to live. But um, the whole idea of going from like black and white to color is used a lot in that film. The black and white is in the afterlife, like with this, when it's showing mm -hmm. just the angels, it's in black and white. And then the human world is shown in color. It's the exact same in a matter of life and death. Even the sort of getups that the angels wear with the sort of big um, sort of classical wings that you would sort of see typically on an angel. Even yeah. they're the exact same in a matter of life and death. So if, yeah. if you were to put a gun to my head and say, look, you have to say one bad thing about this film is that there's some aspects of its, you know, of its presentation that are not wholly original. But yeah, I, I can't really find a whole lot more to say negative about this film. It just really clicked with me um, on an emotional level, which as a film lover, I wish happened more, but honestly it doesn't. Like when I watch films a lot of the time, I think this is great, this is fun, this is entertaining, I can get behind this, or oh, I like the idea of this. I don't actually get emotionally engaged a lot of the time. And um, where I, I feel an emotion watching a film, 
and like this one is one of the ones that does it for me. Yeah, that, that's what just happened to Battle of Algiers for me, but uh, that's a different podcast. So, um, uh, uh, you know, I guess I'm curious to hear because I, I still hold a lot of affinity and like love for this movie. Seeing it again, Adam, if, if you have any opinions on this, or Zach, if you do, I know it's your first time seeing it, but like, what do you think he was trying to say by making these poems so much about the children? Because uh, this, so much of the, the the spoken poetry was about like the mind of a child, or you know, like the perspective of a child. Um, did y'all have any opinions or thoughts on that? I thought that was an interesting. I didn't pick up on that or remember that detail as much from you know when I had first seen it. Um, I'm just sitting here thinking. I mean, I know they were the only ones that could see angels, like young and you know um i guess it's if i'm going to put anything behind it it's the idea that children have gotten to you know they're at that point in their life where there's a lot of there's a lot more positivity you know obviously you get into the film you see the guy who kills himself you see the guy who dies on the street you know there's a lot of hardship with getting older and you can't see the innocence and the necessarily the positive aspects when things are tough I mean, that would be kind of what I te- would take from that. I know this is a weird thing to do on the podcast, but do y'all want me to read just two verses just, just to see if it triggers any memories of, of it? Um, for, for sure, because you mentioned that you didn't really pick up on it the first time you watched it, and I didn't really pick up on it until you mentioned it here. I kind of have an inkling about what maybe sort of vendors is trying to say, but um, yeah, I'd for sure love to hear a couple of verses if that's okay with you. I missed that this was your first time, Adam. That's cool. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, Okay, so just just two verses. They're, they're both short. When, when the child was a child, it walked with its arms swinging, wanted the brook to be a river, the river to be a torrent, and this puddle to be the sea. When the child was a child, it didn't know that it was a child. Everything was soulful and all souls were one. Um, there, there's a whole bunch more about that, and it seems to be centered around the children having a more interesting or innocent view of the world that the angels identified with. But uh, anyways, I, I wanted to... Uh, yeah, I, I, that does kind of tie into what I was thinking. Like, I think we've brought it up before. I'm not a religious person, like, at all. Um, but obviously, I, I'm sort of familiar with, um, you know, concepts. Like, with the line, the child is a child, I don't mean for this to become a literary discussion, even though I am an English major, I'm kind of interested, but um, I don't mean for this to become a literary discussion, but um, when I hear that when the child was a child, and I think of it from a religious context, I think of all humans being God's children. So when humanity was a child, their imaginations were bigger. That's what I'm kind of taking away from this. And as you get older, you become more disillusioned, uh, Zach said, you know, you see horrible things and your view of the world becomes less magical and more disillusioned because of the hardship that you that you sort of endure as you become an adult. Technically, you're still a child in the eyes of God because humans are all God's children as, you know, that's what the Christian belief system or most belief systems go on, really, that yeah. we are all God's children. So when I hear the child as a child and he thought this was that and this was that and this was that, to me, it seems as though he's trying to say is, when human you know human children are able to see the world as a much more magical place and like zach said that's why they can maybe interact or see angels because they're able to view the world without the pessimism 
that comes later on in life when you've been through hardships. Interesting. And so in that way, when the angel, we're, we're, we're just openly talking about spoilers because there's not really anything to be spoiled, like you there's said. There's not right? really, I don't, no, yeah. there's nothing really that can be spoiled with this. So, so when, the, when the main angel decides to become a human, he is then entering in as a child, right? Because those first few scenes, he's sort of discovering like color and he's discovering like, like things that he's only ever heard. It's almost like somebody, you know, with, with scientific and intervention, now people that are like, we're blind can maybe see like a little bit. Yeah. Right. Like he's sort of a child in that sense, maybe. Right. So he's kind of going through all the similar motions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that was one of probably my favorite part of the film. That probably remains one of my favorite part is to see like this man who's like grown man, angel, but like him come down and see the excitement around things that we tend to take for granted because we've done them so many times or, we no longer get excited about seeing the difference between red and blue, you know, these things. But to see him in, like in that state, that's the thing that always I always smile most, I think, in that part. Like um, just just watching that pure moment of like joy of like he's happy with this decision and like, you know, he's getting to experience the thing that he always wanted. You know, I will say um, that was probably the part of the movie that kind of like regained my interest back. Like I had kind of checked out a little bit by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that kind of brought me back in and, you know, not to get, you know, it, it went away again, but I really, I'm with you, Chris, that if I have to pick a favorite part of the movie, even if I'm more negative on it, I thought that was definitely the most fascinating part that and his interactions with uh, Peter Falk. Uh, probably my fa- probably the gag I did think was the funniest of the whole thing is, you know, where he can sense that there's an angel nearby. He keeps talking to them. And the guy in the background who's ever fixing food for him, everybody just looks confused. He does it like two or three times. And the whole mm-hmm. time, the, the guy's just sitting there just trying to figure out what he's doing. And I think that's great. I suppose you brought it up. I was going to bring this up when we sort of stopped, when we kind of moved on from one of the other discussions. But I think we have to bring up Peter Falk. Uh, he's... As good as, like, I, I really like Bruno Ganz. We, we discussed this back when we watched The American Friend. Mm-hmm. Love Bruno Ganz, fantastic actor. Star of this film, though, was Peter Falk. He was just incredible. He yeah. was, for, for a guy who made his, like, I don't want to disparage Columbo or anything like that, but for a guy who made his career, you know, just being a detective and doing detective stuff, he was stupidly, insanely good in this film, yeah. um, playing a fictionalized version of himself, you know, not even you know, like playing like a character or anything like that. He was, you know, being himself and he just exuded charm and warmth and, you know, the interactions with, um, you, you know, with the angels were, were fantastic. And um, honestly, like he was, he was like one of the highlights of the film for me. He was just, he was already brilliant. Um, the, I, I love the scenes, it, like no, knowing where, knowing that he had made the similar decision to like come down to earth and, and lose his wings yeah. and to live as a human. Looking back on his early scenes where he's like painting people or drawing people, I guess, or like where he's engaging with like the elderly and the children of the scenes and sort of like more dismissive of the people that were close to him, like uh, in age, like his peers. I thought that was a nice little touch. Like he gets so excited to see the elderly woman and make her feel beautiful or like so excited to make the children smile. I don't know. It's like a nice, it's a sweet touch. It it ties it ties back to you know what we were talking about with the poetry and with you know the when the angels be, you know become human they are coming in as children and you know that's probably why Peter Falk 
can still see you know the other angels because he still retains that sort of childlike wonder with the world yeah and um, that you know other people his age have long lost you know through disillusionment um, now, I just want to clear up because I may have misread that part. I thought he was saying that he used to be one. Did I miss? Yeah. Did I miss? Yeah, no, that, no, okay. that's that's correct. Yeah. Okay, um, I so, want to make sure I didn't just misunderstand that saying completely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's implied. I don't think he ever explicitly said it, but it's heavily, heavily implied that he was an angel who took a similar decision that okay. um, that Bruno Gans's character. It's either Damiel or Cassiel. I can't remember which one, but um, yeah, he basically made the same similar decision to become human. Um, okay, I, I, you were talking about, I was like, oh my God, did I just completely misunderstand that, <laughs> that entire second half? Yeah, yeah, okay. no, I'm not saying that Peter Falk is a walking man-child, and that's why he can see <laughs> 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 um, Yeah, no, my, I, my idea, now, it could just be because he was previously himself an angel, and that's why he can still interact with them, but um, I think it ties kind of nicely into what we were saying before about angels, when they become human, they're essentially have the the wonderment of a child and that's why yeah. you can still see them but i thought it's open to interpretation either way yeah but no i i agree with your original statement i think peter falk was excellent in this movie uh he probably probably is my favorite part as well um and actually the you got me thinking now about that comment you made about fellini i wouldn't have necessarily said that um but i think you're exactly right it is a great catch like this every time that they're on a movie set or in the circus, that could be lifted right out of a Fellini film. Yeah, it's the circus part that really drove it for me. Like I was just like when I was watching this film, I was just trying to put my finger, you know, on what the style was. You know, when you're watching a film and you and especially like I'm not very well versed in German cinema, so it's not like I can easily put this into a oh it's a French New Wave film or oh it's a film noir. You know, it's not like I can easily pin that into a movement. So. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was watching this, I was I was trying to put my finger on, you know, what kind of style we're looking at here. And obviously the Bergman stuff with the existentialism kind of came naturally. It's not as sort of dark and heady as some Bergman, but, you know, I got that kind of vibe. Um, but yeah, as soon as the circus stuff came in, I thought, OK, well, this is this is this is just kind of like a Fellini film. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a great call out. The movie sets as well, they could have easily been lifted from some of his later work. He kind of yeah. did whether or not it was actually on a movie set, they had that kind of same tracking thing where it's just like tracking through the, and there's like, you know, uh, they're, they're only kind of set up on the on the perimeter and there's like literally just like a fall to the death if any of them like step over the edge. And it's this really very unique, like interesting uh, uh, set, basically like natural set. Yeah. Cool. Any, more, any more final final thoughts or tidbits on Wings of Desire? Um, I, I guess one thing I, I just kind of want to highlight, I wanted to really just let you guys kind of talk because I this is one of these movies I just really, really, really want to like. I've heard so much about it. I like the idea of it. I love the way the film looks. I didn't even you know, one thing I thought was really cool when I watched the beginning was uh, Claire Dennis was the assistant director. And oh. I've watched a couple of her things, which I thought was really cool to see that connection. So I really want to give this another chance, but I think I need to be in the right mindset to appreciate it like I want to. So because I, I, when it comes to like what's wrong with the film, the only thing I come up with is my mindset with it. Like I can't blame the film for anything. Like I just 
couldn't connect with it. And I can't give like a reason that they did any of the filmmakers did wrong on doing it. I just couldn't connect for whatever reason. Yeah, this is the kind of film to watch when you've had like you've had the day off, you've done all your favorite things, and you just want to sit home and relax and just watch something nice. Just that's the kind of film. Not not the kind of film where you've battled with you know HBO or whatever and you're in a pissed off mood because then it's just all the all the schmaltziness of the film is just going to piss you off even more that's true I, you know I, I made a mistake and I want to correct it on this podcast I, I wrote in in the review where uh, uh for the for the film club discussion I wrote that my only real negative thing to say about this movie was that it was a fairly privileged perspective of like what it means to be human because there really wasn't a lot of like pain that was discussed in the movie. Like there was this whole other side of being human that's like sucks really bad for some people, right? And and my and my like as I was watching, I was like, yeah, like this is sort of like a very like safe kind of you know like PG view of the world. Like there's some real trauma in the world, but I forgot. And somebody else's review brought this to my attention, so I want to like correct this on the record that one of the main characters that the other angel followed, the one that didn't come become human, that was like his, his buddy, um, one of the main characters that he followed was a Holocaust survivor. And just talking about the history of Berlin. And so my statement's not really true. Like they included the worst parts. And so I think it's just, it's interesting to, I, I guess the only piece that's never really been resolved for me was why he chose to give up his wings. Um, Zach, you shared what you were jokingly saying is your favorite review. Um, and, and it's an interesting point. Like, it's funny to say, like, how dumb do you have to be to give up your immortality, <laughs> you know? And, um, but there's also, like, I, I think it's also an interesting point. Like, I've never fully resolved, like, why he chose to come down. Um, unless it goes back to kind of what we've been talking about, about this like appeal of sort of having this like innocence and getting to experience life for the first time. But I, I don't know if that's enough for me. Like it's, yeah, I've never been able to fully resolve it. Well, the connection I kind of made there, and it's, it's definitely not purposeful because this came out later. Uh, everyone who's ever listened to this knows I'm a huge Carpenter fan. So I'm going to bring up Starman. Chris, have you seen Starman? I have not. Sorry. Okay. So I'm not going to spoil anything, but a big theme of that movie is, Jeff Bridges takes the body of this woman's uh, deceased husband, and he's sort of trying to learn how to be human so he can be taken back home. And um, one of the things that's a big part of that is, you know, he lives in a world that they don't have any pain. They don't have any things like that, but they also don't have a lot of joy. Like he sees a lot of like the whole time he sees all this pain, but at the end of the day, he sees the the happiness and you know the the small moments that people enjoy and i kind of felt like maybe i was just like making a connection that wasn't there but when i watched the movie that's kind of what the same sort of thing i thought they were kind of going with was yeah he can experience no pain forever but he maybe he'll never get the joy he needs and maybe that's worth it ah it's this the old c.s lewis argument did y'all i don't know if y'all ever read any of his stuff but his wife died and he was like wrestling with that for years. And he wrote a book, I think it's called the problem of pain. Anyways, he wrote a book. And in that he says the best he could come up with is that if he never got to experience the pain life brings, he would never get to experience the beauty of it. And so it was like, not that he was okay with the death, but sort of saying like, I understand the, 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 um, the purpose of having pain 
so that you get to also then have the opposite and get to experience those moments of joy, right? So yeah, yeah. you gotta have a you gotta have a barometer there, or not barometer, but I can't remember the right phrase. But you have to have a there has to be something to compare it to. Like if you've never had pain in your life, how do you know what joy feels like? Yeah, honestly, that's good enough for me. I didn't make that connection, Zach. I'm glad you said that. I that's I think that closed that loop for me. I, I don't know if that was Wonder's intent, but that's certainly I. I I, I believe that as well. So yeah, okay, great, solved. <laughs> okay, uh, welcome back to Interview Corner. Uh, we've never officially changed that to the to the name, but we've just been very fortunate to get a lot of interviews in Collection Corner. So um, maybe maybe we can make a, find a better name for that, y'all, one day. But um, Lewis uh, Justin from Masker Video has been uh, the most punk rock member of the uh, independent distribution uh, game since two thousand seven. He's been just directly plugged into kind of films that are uh, in the gutter, as he as he so lovingly puts it. Uh, but in in the meantime, he's amassed some deep connections in the industry. Uh, I'm excited for you all to hear this interview. I, uh, I you know I, I knew Massacre Video through the movies that I collect. I had no idea his his depth of knowledge, and and he's kind of a historian. So it was it caught me off guard in a in a really wonderful way, and. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy this interview. So so appreciative of Lewis to give us the time, and I hope you all enjoy it. Um, okay, yeah. Joined by Lewis Justin from uh, Massacre Video. Uh, so Lewis, thanks again for making some time for us. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so so you in in some form or fashion, Massacre Video has been around since is it at least 2011? Is that right? Uh, 2007. Seven. That's okay. I was yeah. off. That's amazing. Yeah, our first release was in 2011, though, I think at the uh, end, or it might actually have been the early 2012, possibly. It started originally as an online DVD store after um, ExploitedCinema.com shut down. Um, I had been friends with Tony and kind of like would pick his brain about that a little bit. I wasn't saying I have friends with Tony. I was like an annoying kid at a convention to Tony, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but it pretty much picked his brain and kind of did that, and uh, that was cool and all, but I did that wasn't really what, like, I didn't really like doing it very much, so then the yeah. distribution aspect came a little later. Okay, well, that's, that's great, and so you've been in DVD, you've been in Blu-ray, and you've been in streaming, uh, as well as sort of this, with, with this new, uh, with Massacre, uh, you know, with the streaming site that you've got going as well, um, so you've kind of been do doing it all now in these, what, I guess, 14 years. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing it independently all this time. The streaming company, the, the streaming service is pretty fun. Um, we're the it's still being developed on the back end, but soon we're gonna actually have a lot more movies from other labels and things as well. So well, that was be, a, yeah, that's great. That was a question yeah, because I've seen I've been a I've been like a subscriber or whatever to your streaming site now for a few months, and I I noticed this trend whether it's Arrow or whether it's yours or whether it's you know, um, there's a few other ones that are starting to get off the ground. Shout Factory has one as well. But like, you know, it seems like it's typically their own content, but it just feels like for what you're putting out, like there's this really like underdeveloped market and, and you could potentially be a pretty powerful distribution arm for uh, a lot of the really wacky and wild side of cinema. I would like to be the uh, the platform I'm dealing with. I've been dealing with the owner, Sam Lucas, a lot. And he's uh, he's a really cool guy. Um, we're kind of, I'm kind of stress testing them right now because they say we can put up you know pretty much whatever we want outside of hardcore pornography 
And I, I think I explained uh, pretty much to them and their PR like people and everyone like what some of the, not everything that we do, obviously, because it's, I would say it's a multi-range, but there is some titles in the catalog that most places will not even just allow on their streaming platform. So we're kind of stress testing them with tumbling dollar flesh right now. So yeah, yeah, I was, that was, that was one I was going to ask about actually. <laughs> yeah. So if that one is like, they, they've seen no issue with it and they're pretty cool. Like they're pretty like, you know, pro-independent cinema and are weird about it. So hopefully that'd be cool. Cause we're going to actually, I'll just say, yeah, we're going to do unearth films, their stuff. So we're going to do the American guinea pig series pretty soon on there. Shit. Um, yeah. Stuff like that. Fun that's stuff. great. Um, so that's uh, kind of ties in to, to something I've heard from a, a few different folks now that this industry, like, to, you know, as, just personally as a collector, it feels big and like wide and kind of vast, but like, as I'm getting to know more, more kind of label owners, it, it feels like it's not actually that big of an industry, that big of a world once you're kind of in it. Is that fair? There's like 15 of us. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think and, uh, and, it definitely gives on the mirage than it's larger than it is. That's hilarious. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you kind of know all 15 over, over the years, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> That's I, work in, I work in the same office as like David from Severin and I, uh, I don't know, like Vinegar Syndrome. We've basically like been in the business the same amount of time. So like I'm friends with the owners and all of that. That's fun. Uh, well, that's. It, it kind of makes sense uh, anyways that that's just that it feels like there's a lot of like commonalities in the way that the um the packaging there's like a stress on on the creative packaging and and like you know sort of understanding of the consumer so i don't know if y'all share insider traders secrets as well, well they all have they all have my designer yeah yeah everyone that's uses amazing. pretty much i started when i started massacre we um there was this guy on eBay who would always outbid me on tapes. And this is when I thought tapes were going out of control when like big boxes were selling for like $30. So nothing compared to what's happening right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He would always be the one outbidding me. And this is back when eBay would like show you the person who was outbidding you, not with like the little asterisks that they do now. Uh huh. And I just like kind of like cold emailed him like, dude, what the heck? Stop it. You don't need every tape. Like, this is ridiculous. But like in a friendly banter way. And he was doing um, screenings in the Poconos where he's from in Pennsylvania up in uh, Stroudsburg. And uh, he was doing actually posters for it. And he was showing me his graphic design. And I was like, hey. I'm doing this, want to do it. And now he designs a very good amount of Severins, a good amount of uh, vinegar syndromes. He's done a little bit of everyone at this point as Terror Vision Records. So, wow. Well, speaking of small world, that's amazing. What a story. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. Great guy. Great designer. He used to design billboards. and. Did he ever good. stop outbidding you? No. <laughs> that son of a bitch. No, uh, I just, really I just was, no, I just found him my stuff in person. He overpaid on eBay. <laughs> um, that's amazing. So you, you you kind of alluded to this a minute ago, but you have quite a wide range of like content in your in at least in the physical releases. So I've I, I don't know if I told you as, as part of your part of the email chain. I may have, but I just recently got in the out of print uh, slip of Hackle Lantern. It finally came up on eBay which was the only thing I was missing to go complete on your line. I think most of them 
I was able to buy in your store. There's a few that were out of print. Um, but um, the, uh, it, it, you know, I've, so I've seen one through four at this point, and then I've got Danger USA coming up next. Uh, but even within that, I feel like there's been already like a big range. And then Danger USA is different from any of, any of those. Um, so do you have a particular way that you go about seeking out content or do you have a particular way that you, you know, and then like, you know, Mahakal, is that right? That, that just yeah. came out. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but that's again, like quite different. So I, I, I was trying to figure out like, if there's like a unifying theme or a way that you kind of feel or, you know, seek out these movies. As I, it's just kind of the movies I've always been into. I've just always more liked weirder stuff. Uh, I've always wow. been a big fan of shot on video films and I like, like I love Italian films because they're like the Italians version of American cinema and often they're better than us, our cinema in uh-huh. my opinion. But uh-huh. then you have India doing Mahalkal, which is great in its own right. And, you know, they're, cause they're I just always like very esoteric cinema, I guess. It's, I don't, I've never really been able to answer that one accurately. It's just kind of the taste, well, I guess. There's the, so, so far Hack Lantern is like one of the, I'm going to start using that as an example of like what can be done really well from uh, the just like having a bunch of different really random elements in a film that probably shouldn't work together, but somehow work really well. <laughs> um, and then recently just finished Fiend, which is another one that like I think that what he was able to do on I don't know what the budget was for that, maybe ten dollars. <laughs> like, I don't know. But like what he was able to do with that budget and some of the basic special effects with like the supernatural elements was super creative. Um, so I, I, I'm definitely, I'm really liking what, what I've seen so far from y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, lantern is a trip. It's actually why I, I this is my, I, the producer has kind of confirmed it, but it's, essentially Indian directors making an American film, but they're still putting in all of the Indian elements. They're just Americanizing them. That's exactly what it felt like. Like it's kind of metal yeah. instead of like this long drawn out musical sequence about love or whatever, right? Yeah, but there's, they still have the music sequence in it. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that, that's the commonality, like the girl dancing around with the snakes, the ending of it. Like it's, that's very, you know, Bollywood cinema made by like yeah. a very acclaimed Bollywood director at the time who came here and made that and a lot of uh, more like sexploitation stuff for Cinemax and Fiend like Don Doler is just a maverick he's it's like a one-man show and that's my favorite film from him honestly so it's, it's less gory one but it's definitely his best it, it's great it has some amazing lines too from the husband just like the way that he I don't know like it's just a very funny uh movie that has its own personality I'm trying to I'm trying to talk about it more to people and get more people to see it it's really it made me laugh you, a lot did you see the bonus movie on that disc? Uh, uh, no, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't. What was it? There's an Easter egg on that disc. Um, I'm not sure how you, I, I honestly don't remember how you get to it, but it's on the special feature menu. If you just fuddle around on it enough, the uh-huh. feed will pop up and it'll, it has um, his movie Blood Massacre on it as well, which is the meanest Don Dollar film, definitely. Like it's a very, it's a very harsh film. Start has a lot of the cast from Fiend. I think it's uh, late eighties. It was shot. That's awesome. Well, that's the second one then, because Enter the Devil had a special bonus feature, which was quite different from the movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. California Connection. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Because Enter the Devil, I was surprised it actually has a PG rating, right? 
Yes, um, which cracked me up because there's no way that film would be should be PG if you think about it in terms of like things kids should watch. <laughs> oh yeah, but, definitely not. It's just a weird rating system back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then on the back of, of that was California Connection, which is by by no stretch a PG. Um, Great film, though. Um, Great film. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of machine, any, any hardcore films that have like extensive machine guns and car chases, that's, that's A1 in my book. Well, so speaking of this, we, we just were recently had a chance to speak with um, Justin LaLiberty from uh, Vinegar Syndrome mm-hmm. and kind of talking about this idea of preservation, right? And as you get deeper into preservation and like kind of thinking about it through that lens, it, it gets harder to be the the judge of which ones should or shouldn't be preserved it's just sort of like well like film as a as a form should be preserved in in any capacity right i mean yeah definitely i mean you gotta keep economics in it aside so i mean there's definitely some things that probably don't need to be like commercially sold but should be archived i'd agree with you there yeah and that that's the fun thing i think about california connection for example right is it's like probably not a big audience naturally for it, like outside of maybe people seeking interest, like old interesting pornographic films or like maybe historic kind of movies. You would be Um, surprised. There is still a selection of customer that orders with checkbooks and that's the kind (laughs) of stuff they want. I don't sell it, but some of the 15 do and that's how they get it. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I mean, whatever. yeah it's 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 a a surprise yeah yeah i think it all crosses over at the end of the day in all honesty within the genre stuff because you know the the porn was made by the horror people it's it's a one and the same essentially in my kind of book because that was the same crew as enter the devil dave cast wrote it just what they did after (laughs) exactly yeah that was what made me laugh so hard like what a a follow-up film oh it's a great Um, (laughs) yeah and he probably i don't know if he used the same set but it it looked like Mm -hmm. um uh, so, yep, same set. Okay, it was. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, that at least logistically that makes sense. Um, yeah, you got, you, you, got, so, you got movies for two markets. It's the beauty of the exploitation business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> economies of scale, I guess. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, so you, so you, okay, you've been doing this since two thousand seven. Got into the distribution game in two thousand eleven. I, so I stopped the first round of sort of like collecting right around two thousand nine. 10 because i started around 2001 um had you know you yeah that's that's you you read my mind so that's kind of what i was going to ask like how has this been for you jumping into physical media kind of around that time like you know how how like what changes have you seen over these last 10 years like um yeah how's that how's that been well i i did i don't like really come from means so jumping into it i pretty much jumped into it when the business died original the first time (laughs) um so like yeah around around then is when i because i bought the rights to 555 in 2009 i believe so like by the time i was getting into it when i would annoy like jerry or don at synapse they'd just be like our sales are literally cut in half like why would you want to do this (laughs) um but i I, you know i worked a seven dollar an hour job so it doesn't really take much to be better than that at some point (laughs) okay i could survive just poor for years and years uh there's definitely been 
within the past, definitely during the pandemic, the pandemic has felt like it's almost added multipliers of people starting to get into these films, which is really cool. Um, but definitely within the probably probably around the time actually Hack-A-Lantern came out, like it's definitely, it's not, it's nowhere as it was in 2006 and 2007. It's still a skull of, it's a little skeleton of what it used to be, but it's a little bigger now, at least. Well, that was the joke. money on everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like uh, dark humor there. But like th- there's a, uh, uh, that was kind of the joke was like Anchor Bay, those old limited editions used to be like 90,000, right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I think the Army of Darkness was like 250,000. <laughs> and it felt like oh man i better go buy it <laughs> oh yeah yeah that like beyond tin that i think was eighty thousand. that was the coolest oh god i love that you know about those tins i feel like there's probably i don't know i have so i i, I went complete on the tins before the first time before i stopped collecting and uh-huh. i've i've got them kind of on a shelf somewhere now i, I go back to them every once in a while but like that i never see i don't are you on reddit at all no Okay, so people will post their collections. There's a few different subreddits where people like post their collections, you know? And I never see those tins. I never hear people talk about them. Oh, yeah, they're awesome. The guy who actually ran the distribution company I used to be signed to, CAV, they're the ones who, like, that was their products. Like, that was their, they were the ones who did those. Oh, that name sounds familiar, actually. I think I've seen it. Specifically, yeah, all of, like, really- it's, it's, it's all, like, like, almost every other label was on them. Which has kind of become uh, MVD now, right? Like yeah, everyone, in terms of everyone came to MVD. I'm I'm going to remain solo on my own. I'm not going back to distributors, but okay, yeah, yeah. I see I see MVD popping up a lot now. Yeah, MVD is MVD. MVD has basically signed everyone minus a few people. Okay, they're dude. Okay. They do good. They're uh, they're slaying it. So I see why. But yeah, is this is this a good time for you then as an independent to be in physical media? Like, are you happy you're here now? I mean, it's really all I know, to be honest. So it's like one of those kind of situations. Definitely happy to be here, but, you know, it's not the most lucrative thing in the world. So I'm I'm definitely like always pursuing side things. Oh, yeah. I appreciate the honesty on that. That's interesting. It just, I guess from the outside in, it feels like 2019 and especially 20 and then 21, like, you know, stuff that has like 5,000 units, limited edition three five thousand units is gone in like days or like like for sure weeks you know it i don't know it feels like i i don't i've never been a part of something that feels like there's a like a sort of a panic around getting these limited editions and panic around like making sure you get them fast so i don't, I don't know if that's felt on y'all side as well but oh yeah definitely it's it's a definitely a lot of uh three or four days after ordering people wanting wondering why they haven't gotten them yet and stuff like that that happens quite frequently with a lot of the newer people but what can you do <laughs> <laughs> well that's good i yeah I, I hope it continues to be successful for you do you um what what kind of titles do you have coming next i know there's the one uh that's i'm sorry that i have it pre-ordered the title escapes me but you it's, it feels like it's kind of about like a like catfishing type of uh like oh, TFW? yeah Oh, yeah, the documentary? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah, okay. yeah, it's TFW No GF by uh, Alex Lee Moyer. It's like a, kind of like a documentary portraying like just the just weird internet culture and kind of what the havoc mixed with modern society. It's racked on like poor areas and stuff from 
my opinion. I guess a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on that one, but I thought it was a pretty cool documentary. Yeah, we're working on that one right now. Um, it's being manufactured. So when those get in, we got those out. Um, Flesh Contagium is about to come out. That's uh, from Alex Vasante in Italy. And they're like this really cool uh, little clique of filmmakers there. And they're really big fans of like Bruno Mattai and uh -huh. all the good all the good directors so their films are kind of very adjacent to those but modern day and a little bit more low budget but they're a lot of fun um working on Olaf Ittenbach's Dard Divorce and trying to get the Men Behind the Sun um trilogy finished but we're going back to the raw scans from them and not using the Hong Kong restoration because they applied a lot of digital stuff into them so we're having to go piece them back together oh that's shit well that so that longer, but are, are you going to be doing some more cat 3 stuff then is that sort of are you, are you yeah. trying to seek out more of that yeah definitely uh, we got horrible high heels coming out as well and a few more but those aren't announced yeah, horrible high heels really isn't announced i've just post stills from it but we're going to be doing that one with the uh full duck scene intact for the first time in hd and unblurred are you going to be doing the thing in uh, um, like Cannibal Holocaust where they have the cruelty-free version? <laughs> no, no, we will not. <laughs> no, I imagine that'd people, be a nightmare. If you would. If people don't, if people don't want to see that, just watch another movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Anyways, we we, we kind of <laughs> we, we kind of joked about that. It's a funny idea to think about a cruelty-free Cannibal Holocaust. Like I don't know. It's just a funny. Like it's a funny concept to put that out. Um, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's, it's harsh scenes. These are they're harsh films. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, try to stay as far as I can away from removing things from films, just on like a moral level. Like even if it's you know content, like I, I obviously I don't really like agree with animal violence, and I wouldn't do it myself, and would condemn people doing it. But these are films of the past, so. Yeah, it's preserving an era, right? That, it's yeah. like this is this, here. Here is what it was like in its original form. I mean, in Cannibal Holocaust, the uh, some of the the extras they have were fighting to eat the monkey brains after, like they were done shooting. So you know, I guess it's a different way of living. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, to I totally agree with that. That's crazy. Well, it's good to hear. So we we just re there's a speaking of a lot of people jumping into the distribution game. We just recently spoke with a, a company. Uh, I don't know if you've met them yet. They're called Error 4444. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. Sam. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, and they were exactly. And they were talking about uh, trying to find some Cat 3 stuff as well. Um, and then who was it? I feel like somebody else was recently mentioning it that. So it seems like that's going to get some love here in the next few years, um, which is interesting. And the, I mean, those films have been kind of underground for so many years, but then. I remember like seeing, have you ever seen the one called Ricky O? Oh yeah. And I just remember, yeah, I saw that in theaters. Yeah, I was just like, this is the, one of the best things I've ever seen. Like this, is, this movie's so amazing. Um, anyways, so I, no, I, yeah, I'm it's, glad it's this- So it's a really good one. There's um, Unearth Films is putting out um, Untold Story. Not, sorry, not Untold Story. They already put that out. Dr. Lamb. Have you seen that one? No. Oh, no. wow. It's- I, I, my personal opinion, it's the best Cat 3 film out there. Like, okay. Yeah, like, it's better than, better than Untold Story, better than Men Behind the Sun. It's, it's the, it's the cream of the crop. It's the one that should it's have won so the under. Oscar. Yeah, it's, oh, it's so unnerving. 
it's like right before they kind of started going more like Ebola syndrome and being super kind of goofy but <laughs> fucked up. So uh-huh. it's like right on that cusp of like perfect nihilism mixed with a cop drama mixed with just like shit you don't really want to look at. Well, it's, it's it's a good one, Doctor Lamb. Okay, no noted. That's great. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting watching all the way that this. Oh yeah, actually, I think it was on Earth. Now that I was now that you say that, I think that's the other company I recently saw putting out some more Cat Three stuff. So. That's, yeah, Steve's um, been getting some good stuff recently. I think he's also totally on brand. Calamity of the Snakes, and wow, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. That's cool. That's great. Okay. Well, yeah, Louis. Thanks. I mean, this is you know, I I would love to at some point. I don't know if it's if it's today, but if you're ever open to coming back, I'd I'd love to have a sort of like a history lesson of just sort of like the distribution game i did so some of the stuff you said is really fascinating like i didn't realize there's about 15 people that are kind of running the show from the distribution side and like a lot of the names you're dropping so casually are people that you know obviously i I don't know about just as a casual collector right um so um if you're open to it at some point would would you mind uh maybe coming back and and having it be like a little more of a um I don't know. I'll have to figure out what it is. If it's getting a few people on the line together, or or just telling stories from from kind of early days of of collecting here as the. I mean, yeah, def- definitely. They more have the stories because mostly like the generation before, like myself and Vinegar Syndrome, uh, those are all the people who worked at Anchor Bay. Is so that what happened? Been- like a lot of. Yeah. Yeah, Anchor so, Bay was Anchor Bay. Like the reason why the releases were amazing is because uh the director of maniac you know was the curator lustig right yeah then he went and started blue underground and all of these guys worked for him all like most a lot of the labels worked for him so the owners of the current ones oh wow that's great so the lineage is kind of like like in college football they talk about like coaching trees and how many people like go under nick saban and like go become good coaches or whatever so it's sort of like bill lustig is the guy (laughs) And then oh you can um, you can even go farther back than him if you start going in the film distribution. Okay. You can trace it back deep if you want, but that's just my nerdiness. Uh, no, I mean I'm interested. Like where would you go a level beyond that for I mean right there you could just go to like distributors who were putting out his movies and got him to where he was. Was is that was that CAV or no, no. Um I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember their names, but that's the whoever was the producers on Maniac, and I guess the people who really oh. got Maniac out there. Got you, got you. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't, I don't know that generation. I'm far removed from it. I just know this stuff because I work around the people a lot who worked with Lustig. So. Well, I know that the, I've always known there was a tie between like Blue Underground, for example, and Severin, but I just didn't really know exactly what it was. So basically, Severin, those, <laughs> they're friends. Yeah. That's the tie. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's it. And yeah. they worked. I mean, I, don't, I, I hope David wouldn't mind me saying he's, they, he worked for David. I mean, he worked for William when he first got in the industry. And I think around when did Severin start? Like 2003 or four, maybe? Does that sound yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, I mean, like mid, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Like 2005 is kind of the, the number I have in my head, give or take a year or two. I, I feel like I, I was know. getting the Emmanuel box sets around that time. Yeah, yeah. They were putting out just a few films a year, right? And then they kind of really kicked it up, I feel like, around maybe eight or nine, where they started putting out, like, a ton of stuff. Um, maybe a, year, a little bit before that. 
Um, yeah, definitely. And, then, and now, and now they're, they're just going crazy. Yeah, now they're putting out Going Overboard, which is kind of great. Oh, yeah, that one's fun. Like, I mean, uh, there's a movie too, but I, I like the idea that, like, this next generation of physical media is going to come from, like, Severin and Vinegar Syndrome, like, you know, and, and hopefully, like, you get in this game as well, but it's, like, people that have had, like, a passion for thinking about from the consumers, like, who's buying this, right? Like, what is the packaging? What, like, how do you treat special features? Things like making sure that subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing are, like, included, right? Like, that's one of the things I've been super impressed with your releases. It's small detail but like when you hit play like for three out of the four films the first question after you hit play is do you want subtitles yeah yeah they need the, the movies need to be seen by everyone possible and there's just a lot of deaf collectors at conventions so that it just was blows also my mind. another like, another reason <laughs> well but like but like it, you know not to pick on anybody but like criterion doesn't do that like if you go to like i think they're oh. getting finally okay. getting like oh. better I mean, I don't want to shit talk Criterion because obviously they're a great company, but it's like a dinosaur, you know, like their restorations aren't anything special anymore. Like Vinegar Syndrome does the same level of work and puts, you know, 78 titles a month out with better extras, like the extra <laughs> Severin, the, like the extra work Severin puts on their disc alone is like dwarfing anything they would like do back in their heyday, so... I think they're just a very romanticized brand personally. They put out great films, but it's like everyone's kind of on that level at this point. Well, yeah, no, totally. Like getting the criterion treatment. Brand. Yeah, like that used to mean something very specific, right? Like getting the criterion treatment. So it's kind of become part of like the way people talk about collecting. But the reality is, like you said, like even little choices like vinegar syndrome, they talk about reels instead of chapters or like, like, Severin that has like uh, uh, soundtracks included in a lot of their stuff. Um, anyways, I, I mean, I've the amount even... the amount of extras Severin produces, not even for their own releases, just for everyone else as well. Like, I mean, like David's, he's, you know, made feature length documentaries on the makings of these films and stuff. And they're, they're very, they're insane. Like either the, the amount of stuff they put out, I think dwarfs a lot of, the majors definitely and let me i think the market for premium product at retail stores really isn't a thing so kind of leads it to the weird niche companies i guess in a bizarre way i'll probably I, stay in like the gutter realm of it to be honest is that stuff oh is that, fun that to me? that was my next question yeah so is that is that where you like hanging out yeah definitely that's more my speed 100 percent i i it's just more me as a person and it's just like a personality flaw at the end of the day but I prefer more just to like do things at my own pace rather than be like we have to be a corporation and do this and here and here and here and grow and x and y it's more like we got the boat somewhat stable after a decade it's fine let's chill on it and make nice releases but don't like try not to resent the product is I think the key (laughs) Oh, that's great. great. What a great tagline. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. If, if there was a, a, a I, pre, I appreciate you being flexible and just kind of talking about, you know, the, the more the industry at large and like other labels and stuff. If there's if there's something that you would want people to know that aren't like don't, currently don't really know a lot about Massacre Video, is there either a like a title you would point them to to get started? And then kind of like as a side question, like, is there a takeaway sentence or anything you would want, kind of want them to like think about you uh, when they're when they're thinking about collecting? Does that question make sense? 
Um, not really for the second part, honestly. Okay. And uh, I mean, I guess it would really depend on the. I gotta have to give them the convention spiel. Like, it really just depends on their taste. Because if they have one broad taste, I can usually guide them into a title. But it's really hard for some of them because I can't recommend everyone a Roscoe, unfortunately. Or some people more want the comedic stuff. So I guess if you're more into like the more subversive extreme side, I would say Tamakichi and Naru's films and um, Surisaki Taikaka's films are definitely the way to go. Um, if you're, I guess, I, actually, I, I, I'll backtrack a, a step, like a step back saying I like remaining in the gutter. TFW really isn't a gutter film. Like it was official selection at uh at a uh, South by. So I guess we kind of are expanding into larger areas on second thought, but I guess gutter larger areas possibly because that movie does seem to still like drag controversy with it. But so I guess, I don't know. It's, it's a, uh, that, that's a hard question for me to answer. I like it though. I, I, here's the thing, like, you know, in, in the one thing I've noticed being on Reddit is just in the last two years, I, I don't even know how long I've had an account. It's not much more than two years but sort of getting into these film communities here is like, if you meet 10 people there, they're all going to have extremely wide range of experience, interest and, and knowledge. Right. And mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like this is a lot of times for people, I, as I kind of talk about this, it's like when you're like 15, 16 years old, you kind of like maybe are introduced to Criterion at some point as like something that's not a Transformers movie or like not a Pirates of the Caribbean movie or whatever. And then a hundred percent. Right. Yeah, then you kind of like you kind of find about this world that's like bigger nowadays. It might be Arrow or even Vinegar Syndrome that it, that might be that gateway, possibly Severin. Anyways, like I don't know. You kind of have these companies that are sort of like gateway, and then it's a very natural extension to kind of go beyond like deeper into those areas of interest, right? And one yeah, of the, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so yeah, like, like one of the common things that oh, go ahead, go ahead, no, please. Oh no, you go ahead, go. Ahead. Well, I was just gonna say like one of the common things I've heard uh, just consistently now from like uh, either people comment like like comments online or uh, people talking about a movie and saying, yeah, but like, what about this is like stuff like Cat 3 doesn't get representation, right? Like there's this whole giant genre of films that's like out there that was seen at the time of release that was impactful and it's just not getting sort of the time of day or like release. But like it feels like this is kind of tying into my earlier question then about like, are you seeing any changes? Because what it feels like to me at least is that this is the first time where companies are going like really on the fringe and putting out amazing product, not just like 10 movies on a disc, but like really nice product. And it's, we, we grew out. up around that. I mean, I did, I grew up around those terrible sets, like, you know, those Mill yeah. Creek boxes that would have, yes. you know, and it would be just pixelated beyond belief. And like, you know, it's still fine. I'd watch them and not complain because whatever, it's a movie, but the, they have never been represented like they've been they, they those types of movies have always been there's always been like gatekeepers against them you know you can't get a lot of that stuff into retail there's just there's always been like arbitrary rules that never really made sense but everyone had to conform to and now with like you know things like shutter out there where like it this is just my opinion i could be completely wrong this is like my speculation from my little p point but it feels like that old system is just literally crumbling around us currently and this is the first time like we can vocalize this stuff because the fact that people 
Because I remember when I was younger and I would look up Tumbling Doll of Flesh, for instance, there were like two sites that had information about it. That was <laughs> right, it. Right, and that was right. it. And now it's like you Google it and it's like on like lists and stuff and people like know what it is. And like, yeah, I mean, it's sure it's a flawed film aside. I, I personally, I don't know. I just like that guy's work a lot, but it's uh this, it's, it just seems stuff. If it doesn't have a corporation behind it, it takes like 15, 20 years to catch on. So I kind of think we're, we're in that renaissance as well. So people are now finally seeing this stuff. It's great. And, and, and really wanting it, right? Like, which is kind of fun, I think. Oh yeah, definitely. Which is the cool part of it. Cause I mean, they're really cool movies and they get just, you know, I mean, still like a lot of the people who buy like the massacre stuff for the first time, they kind of get mad at some of it. And for them, I'd, you know, more recommend like shout factory or vinegar syndrome or like one of the bigger labels, but yeah, this stuff definitely, it, I, I think the weirder movies should be a little bit taken more seriously, but that's just, uh, my bad personal taste and yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a i think that's a perfect note to end it on look i did I, thank you lewis i really appreciate this yeah, no problem man. all right and welcome back now we're going to be talking about the film uh time me up time me down. <laughs> i'm going to mess up the english one and i'm going to get the spanish one right time me <laughs> up time me down uh and its original name is tame um and it is directed by pedro alamador Almodor Arvar. There we go. Why do, I don't <laughs> know why I do this one. I really should just do uh, another corner. <laughs> 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 um, the film is about um, just released from a residential psychiatric. That's a weird way to display that. Um, where he becomes an all around handyman. Gentle orphan Ricky pursues his sole pathological obsession. Penniless, hence without a chance to quarter, he kidnaps porn actress Maria from the set of a crippled director Maximo's last movie. At first, she hates her abductor. Once she realizes he risks and bears everything for her, she becomes feeling uh, for him too. But won't, uh, but won't she still escape and return to her family and career? Question mark. Jesus, that's such a long-winded fucking way of describing <laughs> this film. Holy God, it's all super the ba- yeah, it's a super there. basic film too. So yeah, he got. Like this is this is the film. It's he ties her up so that he can tie her down so that she'll marry him. That's the film, you know. There's no need to go into subplots here. And, and, he ties her up so she so that he can tie her down. There we go. That's the film. Thank you for coming. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> um, yeah, no. What, what did you think of this? I, I when when I had read, I remember last week when we were talking about this. Uh, and the film was coming up and I had read the description. I thought I thought that you were going to like this film, Zach. So I want to hear your thoughts first off. That's OK. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I've I ranked it as second in our film club. Um, yeah. I just think it's it's a lot of, like I, it's not the best movie we've watched in this. That's still Night of the Hunter. Um, but it is absolutely the most fun I think I've had with any of the movies we've watched. I just think it's ridiculous. I think it's it has like this fun tone to it that it really has like this sense of self-awareness that just kind of, kind of makes you believe in this whole ridiculous plot, like all together. So I'm a huge fan. Yeah, it's definitely fun. I think the only film I had more fun watching was maybe Dames or Tampopo. Um, but yeah, this film, if, if, if nothing else, the film is, is, is a wild ride. It's fun. I didn't, I didn't love it. There's a lot of things I thought were pretty stupid, 
um but it's it's fun that's that's definitely an accurate description of the film if you could only put it down to one word it's it's fun especially uh, with its dark subject matter to say it's oh fun, yeah it's great <laughs> yeah. it's it's literally a guy who you know ties up a woman and essentially kidnaps her holds her against her will until she eventually succumbs to stockholm syndrome dark film really dark film <laughs> fucking fun though yeah, it's funny. So, I, I'm, you know, I always think of that that quote. I can't remember if I said it here uh, on the previous podcast or if it was on the chat, but the John Waters quote when he was talking about multiple maniacs and he said, you know, I want to be clear, rape is never funny unless you're getting raped by a lobster, in which case it's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like, you know, that that kind of mischievous, like, sense of humor is what I've, like, always enjoyed about Almodovar. And so... This movie, like I've always liked it. It's it's one that I really love. I think it's very funny. Um, it's not gonna win any critics awards probably for like depth and metaphor and allegory or like, you know, whatever. Right? It's just sort of meant to be this kind of light romantic comedy with like the darkest subject matter possible. <laughs> yeah, like you say, it's not overly deep, but like this, in a way, the way he presents it kind of is. Like I was kind of reminded of. I know I've talked about this film a lot on the podcast, uh, La Bonheur by Agnes Varda. And the plots of these films could not be any really different, but um, mm-hmm. they, they do kind of follow a similar creative thread in which the director presents the film so that you think we're watching something else and really we're watching something darker. So, you know, the way Amaldivar using, you know, sort of music as a bit of levity to it, very lush, colorful mm-hmm. cam, you know cinematography you know he lures you into thinking you're going to watch a romantic comedy when really we're watching a horrible sort of situation for you know play out it's obviously not as subtle as la bonheur which is very subtle with its um with its darkness to the point where i got to the near the end of the film until i realized really what i was watching play out so it's not mm-hmm. as subtle as, as la bonheur but i i appreciate you know, what Almodovar is doing and how he played, you know, and how he sort of put it out on the table, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. Have you guys um, ever seen this? You know, Adam's going to be great and get some Vard out here. Have you guys ever seen The Notebook? Oh, Christ. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so there is a point to this. That movie's terrible for anyone who's even somehow not seen it. do you do you guys remember that part? It's at the very beginning, so this isn't a spoiler. Where he's trying to court Rachel, Ryan Gosling, trying to court uh, Rachel McAdams at the Ferris wheel. So he he like climbs onto the Ferris wheel and threatens to drop himself and kill himself unless she goes on a date with him. That is like how their first date happens. Um, <laughs> pure and it reminded me bullshit. like. And, you know, that, that whole thing's played as romantic. It's played as this is fine. This is, you know, <laughs> hey, this is this is a normal thing that people should do, you know, <laughs> manipulative. And this film, while, it, yeah, obviously it came out years before that, it kind of feels like that commentary on how a lot of these rom-coms are, you know. they These people are sometimes assholes to each other, and then by the end, everything's okay. Doesn't matter this manipulative or the dumb things or the abusive things you did everything's fine now yeah it happens so much and i'm so sorry to go on a, a really 
mad tangent here, but just a really quick tidbit about the notebook while we're on it before I move on. <laughs> the notebook, I, I, it's not, I have nothing bad to say about the film, just even though it's a crap film. I have nothing specifically bad to say about it. But you know that the guy who, do you know who directed the notebook? No, I actually don't. John Cassavetes' son. Are you serious? Nick, Nick Cassavetes, who's made his career from making shitty Nicholas Sparks adaptations. So, the great <laughs> indie you're not, director. You're not kidding. He really yeah. is. Yeah. He wanted to make like, good movies and like struggle to find food, and he was like, nope. <laughs> yeah. You just imagine. And he played in Face Off, so that makes up for everything. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure John is turning in his grave somewhere, but sorry, we'll, we'll, I digress. We'll, we'll move on to the film at hand. I just, I just didn't know if you knew that. And I just always, I always find it funny. No, that's um, awesome. I did not know that. That's speaking awesome. Of, speaking of critically revered films, uh, uh, like the notebook, um, uh, the, they shoot pictures has, uh, time me up, time me down at 25, 16. That's um, too low. Too low. Too low. Really? I think it's fair. You know, Needs to be, needs needs to be in like the, like top thousand at least. Thousands. Okay. Yeah. 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 It, it, I'd put it there. It, it's interesting when you start getting into directors like Almodovar, whose like career is not necessarily over yet. I mean, he maybe he slowed down quite a bit, but like, you you know, they were making films like in the '90s and 2000s. I don't know that critics quite know what to do because they have a large body of work and like a lot of those films are good and. I don't really know if they, like, you know, it's kind of like this weird thing when you're rating movies of, like, do I put eight Almodovar films in my top 100? You know, it might be too much. <laughs> There's, like, a yeah. big body here. So I think this film might suffer just even from, from that. Like, it's not even the most critically acclaimed and, like, quote-unquote best, you know, Almodovar film. So, uh, and some people in our film club would have said this was his worst. <laughs> some people did not like it. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, to be honest, Zach, as much as I liked it, I would probably, my vote would probably be this is probably fair as well. Uh, especially now that you like this one, I would recommend going and seeing some of his other ones that came out kind of between like late 90s and 2010, like in that time period. I've seen The Skin I Live In, and I really love that one as well. Yeah, yeah, it's great. That was right? the first one I had heard of. This was actually my first download of our film. I, and I, I heard of The Skin I Live In. We should I think have, he was nominated for Pain and Gain, or at least Banderas was maybe finally nominated for Academy Award that came out a few years ago. I can't remember. I'm gonna look it up. No, but that's that's. I, I feel like every week there's a, or every other week or something there's a big director where for one of us it's our first time with him. Yeah, I suppose you know there's such a you know there's been so many sort of legendary or, or maybe you wouldn't call almost very legendary, but at least yet while he's still living, but. You know, there's so many sort of major, yeah. you know, directors, especially in world cinema, like Spain, like Germany. Spain is not a very well-treaded territory filmically for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's only like the spe- the second Spanish film I've ever seen, not in the Spanish language, but like the second film like produced in Spain. Spirit that of I've the seen. Season. Oh crap! No, it's the third then. Because I was thinking of Death of the uh, Death of the Cyclist. Oh, okay. the and I was over here thinking of Perdita Durango and Day of the Beast. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to go on the record to say, listen to, or I mean, listen to, watch Matador, watch Woman on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Heard that's good, uh, yeah. All yeah. about I'm, my mother. All about my mother, yeah. Yeah, talk to her and Bad Education. Those are those are the ones. So we'll, we'll oh, yeah. On. I, I want to say, like, I, I, even though I said I didn't really think the film was great or, 
or anything. Like, I cannot take anything away from Almodovar. Like, he, he directed the film impeccably. Some of the imagery he invoked was, was amazing. Even the sort of, like, sort of Christian imagery. Like, the film yeah. kind of opens on, like, a portrait of, I think it's either of the Virgin Mary or Jesus himself. can't remember exactly. But there is, you know, he invokes a lot of imagery. His direction was fantastic. In the hands of a much lesser director, this would have been, like, a shitty thriller that nobody would ever talk about ever again. No, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, it's it, it's incredibly B movie, and I, that's probably my attraction to it. But yeah, yeah it's like, this film is nothing if not creative. You know, he takes a very simplistic plot that could have been any any you know film school dropout could have made a film like this. You know, having a fucking creep kidnap a woman. You know, it's it's been done. Every second episode of Criminal Minds is is about that plot. You know, so <laughs> you know it's it's not exactly an original idea but the way he tells it is ex- is extremely original and you, you can only really give him credit and plaudits for that because to yeah. take such a basic idea and, and make it so off the wall bonkers whatever way you want to describe it you know you, you have to give him plaudits for that at the very least there's one thing i would definitely have changed and I, it's going to sound like i'm going to give a spoiler but i'm not so do you guys remember when the directimo Maximo is is like editing the film and they're trying to figure out how to end it and the guy was just like just write the end and be done with it. I was really hoping that would be the end of the movie. Like <laughs> when they get towards the end it's just like just write the end and be done with it because we can't solve this issue. <laughs> well, I feel like the film kind of plays out that way. Um I'm going to do a little spoiler warning. So if you're listening and haven't seen the film, spoiler warning, just giving you a heads up. I feel like it kind of does that in a way with this film and this is this is the kind of the part that i really didn't like and it was how quickly um i can't remember the the, the character's name um, her sister yeah uh well no, no the main character i can't remember her name um the main, what was it marlena it starts with an m marina um, marina, oh, marina yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, the, how quickly she kind of turned you know, in terms of like how quickly she fell into the whole Stockholm syndrome, you know, that I kind of, was you know, wondering it, about that too. Um, and I almost felt like part of it was her playing into it, like at least at the beginning, like I, I don't, this is speculation on my part. So just warning there, there's nothing necessarily in the film that says this, but I kind of felt like maybe she was playing into it a little bit. So she, he'd give her a little bit more freedom and then she'd take advantage of it. And then it just, you know, playing into it sort it's of done that easy it's all a bit easy though like, oh yeah it's not and this is what I, no it still doesn't make yeah. it like this is, it, and this yeah is what they're, I mean. they're doing something that takes years i mean you take about like ariel you know it's gonna be a lot actual dark subject matter but you take like ariel castro here in the u.s who kidnapped i don't know three or four women held them captive for decade decade and a half and i mean they didn't really have stockholm syndrome by the end i mean they they were ready to escape for those in that entire time um so you know you're taking a process that takes so much time and it doesn't work on every single person and it's even debated if it exists so you know it's kind of a yeah. complicated thing to figure out i guess in a movie like this what well, is this is kind of sorry chris no no go ahead i was gonna say well this is just kind of my point i was saying as in let's just finish a movie you know it's kind of me yeah. thinking pedro's kind of going okay let's just have a turn let's have her kind of escape Let's have her get together with him. The end. Let's just finish the movie. We spent an hour and a half building this up. Let's just let's just finish it. Uh, kind of like what I was saying about um, Pam 
Palm Beach story a few weeks ago where, you know, you got <laughs> you got to a certain page number and you thought, ah, oh, fuck it, let's just finish the movie. You know that kind of, <laughs> you know that kind of way. And um, <laughs> I, I really tried to debate this for myself to kind of come up with a reason why she would turn so quickly. And, you know, I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, is her porn star drug addled past? You know, maybe because she's such a broken person. Any sort of attention, she she's happy. Feel to like edit. someone cares about her. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to justify it in my mind, thinking, you know, uh, you know, it must be because, you know, she's a drug addict or because she used to be a porn star. She's getting the, someone's giving her attention, love and affection, even if it's a really twisted, fucked up way to do it. She's getting it, and um, maybe that's why she's so receptive. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's not like like she's now a successful actress. Okay, she's a B movie actress, but. You know, she's having success. Uh, success. She's a nice apartment. She's a family who cares about her. You know, so I couldn't really justify. She has a support fully. system. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just couldn't just if she, if you know if he had picked her up off the street or something like that, then maybe I could have bought into it a little bit more. But she just walked out of her filming her starring role in this horror movie, and her her sister's great and always around. And you know, she was supposed to meet and go to a go to a dance club with her sister to meet some friends. You know, I just I, I couldn't justify it. And maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But, you know, it just kind of graded me. I, I want to take a slightly different approach. What if I'm not trying to speak for, for, for Pedro Almodovar, but what if we're looking at it from the wrong way? What if he's not trying to justify the kidnapping and like the grooming of a woman to fall in love? What if it's like a critique of rom-coms? And what if he's taking a sort of a poke at like, how ridiculous like the plot of every rom-com is throughout history and how quickly people fall in this like you know I have one magic person like supposed to fall in love like in like a lot of the situations that people find themselves in like it's not really what happens in real life right and so what if he's just kind of taking like a mischievous devilish kind of turn on like the rom-com genre and saying what about this like this is no more ridiculous than any of the other crap that's out there so essentially taking the manipulations and abuses as Zach talked about and kind of making the extremist version of that. Almost to a force in a sense. Yeah, maybe like not even necessarily focused on the fact that it's like about the abuse or Stockholm syndrome, but more of just like, like you guys watch just like my, like you don't care what the content of these rom-coms are. If two people are presented, you just somehow, for some magical reason, you want them to end up together. So here I'm gonna make you kind of uncomfortable, like, like the same thing that Hanukkah does in that movie Funny Games, where he's like, "Yeah, okay, like we're about to get super uncomfortable here if this is what you want." <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get yeah, it's almost like, like challenging the audience on what they actually want. Like, yeah, and you know, it also goes back to almost what you're saying, like how we deal with questionable protagonists. You know, the ones who aren't really good people, but they're presented enough to where we're gonna root for them. Where if we were given the villain, we'd root for him because that's our focal point. It really, so it's almost like, do you believe this relationship at the end? Yeah, right. And in those other films, the directors and writers don't have to work that hard to convince people that they're supposed to be together. We just kind of go for it. So, like, why would this be any different, right? Okay. Um, I mean, I think that's a pretty fair reading. I did want to bring up going with the end and going with that as well. She has a certain look at the very end, you know, like yeah. him and the sister really, you know, get along and everything. And she just almost has like this sense of regret. Yeah, it really reminded me of the end of The Graduate. 
Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I agree with that Re- completely. Yeah, it really reminded me of that where she's thinking, ah, fuck, what now? Yeah. And he's uh, he, obviously, unlike the graduate, where they both kind of have that mutual feeling of, oh, shit, what now? You know, it's only really her. Like, he's he's buzzing, his sister. <laughs> her, her sister is you know, having a good time, and she's sort of slowly going, oh, you know, what the what the fuck am I gonna do now? You know what what's what's the next step here? I, yeah, I, I, I caught that as well. Someone who tied you up for three days. Yeah. <laughs> um, Adam, I think I found your fourth Spanish film. You saw Vera Diana with us, right? Oh shit! Yeah, I forgot. All. I I've I have been constantly constantly thinking that Vera Diana was a different film. This is how little I cared about Vera Diana. I realized whenever I was like thinking back on Viridiana and like thinking of moments in the film or people who are in it or plot points, I was instead thinking of Diary of a Chambermaid. I've only realized that I've seen Diary of a Chambermaid because I was like I was like looking through the lists of films that were expiring and Diary of a Chambermaid came up and I'm like, wait, I've seen that. And then I went and looked up Viridiana and I'm like, wait, this is a different film. I've seen both of these, and it just kind of merged in my brain as the same film. Um, yeah, I didn't really care for Verdi. That's very low on my on my ranking. I didn't get, didn't care for that film. I uh, I think that in in a way, I, I don't know if I should say this. I don't know if I can back this up a lot, but I, I really like Bunuel, uh, and uh, Veridiana probably least uh, lesser than some of his other stuff, but. Um, I think El Moldovar, maybe at least in his humor and the way like his subject matter is sort of a successor to Benwell in terms of because Benwell was like very provocative, right? When he was working and, and El Moldovar yeah. most of films are like very provocative. Um and so that's he he he's the one that turned me on to Benwell because I kind of was like, Oh, does they do they make good films in Spain? After I saw um, Bad Education in the theaters, I kind of went backwards and so anyways, I've always there's always a connection there in my mind, but um, I'm going to be a little bit biased towards El Moldovar just for that. He kind of opened my eyes to to Bunuel, who's now one of my favorites. I do want to note the best visual gag in the movie, which is like overly simple, but I love it just because uh, there's a part where the editing scene and on the door, there's Don Siegel's uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers poster on the door. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was great. It's, I have no greater point to that than it's an obvious joke, but I thought it was great. That is good. Um, I just that just reminds me of um, uh, something about invasion of the body snatchers reminded me. Isn't Guillermo del Toro from from Spain as well? Uh, he's from Mexico, isn't he? Oh, he's from Mexico. Okay, never mind. Yeah, uh, let me just sure pull out my Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> uh, well, Pan's Labyrinth was. Oh, he's totally produced. In, yeah. yeah, like Pan's Labyrinth was produced in Spain. It's obviously except during the Spanish Civil War, but I'm pretty sure he was like born in Mexico. I, I was. I would think, yeah, I think you're right because I think. Yeah, I, I believe that's correct. Yeah, because Pan's Labyrinth, the Criterion will say Spain because that's where it was. That's where it was produced. The same way if Criterion released The Shape of Water, it would say USA because that's where it was produced. Gotcha. Um. So. Uh, yeah, I just looked it up. Yeah, he was born in Guadalajara, so he's he's Mexican. Right. Never mind. We wouldn't want to. Uh, we wouldn't want to uh, insult all of our Mexican viewers by saying that they're Spanish or vice versa. So. No, 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 no. <laughs> Spanish speaking. I, I was. I was asking precisely because Pan's Labyrinth. I, I thought there was a connection to Spain there, but um, I guess it was only. Yeah, in, it does take place, like Adam said, in the Spanish Civil War. 
Yeah, and I've never even seen the film. I just know that, so I can't. Oh, even... you've never seen Pan's Labyrinth? Nope. I feel necessary to pick that next week. That's on the <laughs> oh, if it's on the like honestly, I've just been waiting for it to come on the channel because there's no good release of it here in Region B, and um, you know, I yeah, just... that whole trilogy is good, dude. You should just watch all. Yeah, three. I remember the Devil's Backbone. I should have. I was gonna watch it as part of the the film, the Criterion Challenge for the horror section, and I ended mm-hmm. up watching Current Echo instead. Um, but uh, yeah, no, Pan's Labyrinth is one of those films I've been meaning to see for years and years and years and years and years, and just have never, it's just never fallen on my lap. It's never, the it, time has never been right for it. I think you love like, magical realism stuff, you will like this, and I say that as someone who doesn't care for it, but it's great. Yeah. It, oh, yeah, it's yeah, very no, magical realism, but I've it's heard awesome. fantastic things about I know the sort of basic premise, but yeah, it's just, it's just never, the stars have never aligned for me and Pan's mm-hmm. Labyrinth. Yes, you know. I don't think it's going to come on the channel. Isn't that one of the ones they lost the rights to? Because that box set is out of print now. Yeah, but oh, it has an individual release. I actually saw release, the DVD so, copy it? at my Barnes today. Yeah, well, it has a it has an individual. I know that he had a box set that is out of print, but I'm pretty sure each film has an individual release. They do have individual releases, but I know Warner Brothers put out a 4K. I'm just going to go to Criterion.com. So they may have lost the rights. Criterion.com will tell me. Let's go to Criterion.com. I think they have the other ones, but I think that one is... That's You said that's the one that got the 4K release, right? Yeah, and it's a terrible 4K release. Just keep the Criterion. I assume they probably lost the rights, but just let's just humor me for a minute. Hans Labyrinth. How the fuck do I spell Labyrinth? Oh, I, I screw it up. Don't ask me. I'm just going to search hands and hope, to come, and hope it comes up. The B before the Y. Before I, I just search, I literally just searched pans and just hoped that it came up. No, you can order their, their Blu-ray from Criterion's website. So. Oh, that's super interesting. The Blu-ray's out of print, but the DVD's in stock. Of the box. Criterion's website here. Yeah, because the DVD box set was at Barnes today. That's what I thought was interesting. Oh, you mean the box set is out of print? Yeah, yeah but you the can buy the box indiv- set was still available. Buy, yeah. I thought it was out of print, too. And the, the Pan's Labyrinth Blu-ray, you can buy it on Criterion's website here now, so it's definitely not out of print anyway. Right stuff is so messy. Maybe because they put that 4K out, they wouldn't let them have the Blu-ray, but they let them have the DVD. That's so weird. Whatever. Okay. But uh, like I said, though, like Pan, the individual Blu-ray for Pan's Labyrinth is available. Oh, that's yeah, right. that's Yeah, that's weird. That's, I'd love to know what weird contract they had to get for that. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, so bizarre. Anyway, anyway Motivar. <laughs> uh, if Adam actually leaves us in, you'll see what all he has to edit out to make these episodes possible. <laughs> Eventually, we'll do a Patreon, and each each sort of in you know for the Patreon listeners slash viewers, whatever we do, they'll just hear all the shit we ramble on with every episode. <laughs> and just to give a sneak peek, in case we do, I'm going to leave this part in. So if you're if you're listening right now, this is we half of our content we record ends up on the floor because we just talk shit like this <laughs> like um, at some point there's usually chris screen sharing something and yeah. we'll talk about that for a little while <laughs> and usually something he's gonna blow way too much money on that he's not gonna tell his wife how much it costs <laughs> <laughs> and that that's the patreon is the conversations i have with my wife when she finds out <laughs> <laughs> do like a hidden camera scenario of her looking at the credit card bill yeah <laughs> i'd pay to actually that would be a great patreon thing i'd watch that i'd pay yeah. for a patreon <laughs> season three of uh, one of these like crime shows that's big popular now <laughs> <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a netflix special about chris's murder 
after he buys that Eric Romer box set. Yeah, they snobs. Yeah, they'd be like, I mean, she clearly did it, but like, I kind of get it. What the hell? Is yeah. <laughs> okay, and uh, we're now we're coming into our last segment, which, as always, is any other business. You probably know what I'm about to say. If you're a regular listener, they say the same thing every damn episode, but any other business, just a section for us to talk about a film we liked. Doesn't have to be Criterion, doesn't have to be good, just something that we want to give a quick shout out to. So um, I'll just jump in with mine really quickly because it's a super famous film. I'm sure most people have seen it, but it was my first time watching it because I just never found an accessible way to see it before in Region B obviously ended up watching on the Criterion channel and it's um, Chinatown by Redacted. Um, never seen it. Never heard of it. <laughs> it must be super indie. Yeah, it's like, it's honestly like just one of those films that like have like less than five views on Letterboxd and you kind of stumble across it. <laughs> um, no, look, it's probably the best film by a rapist I've seen. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Uh, no, look, it's it's. I honestly, the film blew me away. Like when you ha- when you when you kind of watch these revered films, you kind of have to set yourself expectations that it might not be as good as everyone says it's going to be. Chinatown was as good as everyone says it is. It's an awesome film. Yeah. It's it's just it's a it's dark. It's brutal. It's probably the most depressed. Like I'm a I'm a huge film noir fan you guys know that i'm sure the listeners know it by now this is the most brutal film noir i've ever seen man the ending of this film which everyone knows like i knew the final i knew what the last line of dialogue was going to be i didn't know what the run-up was i knew what the last line of dialogue is because everyone knows it's one of the most famous pieces of dialogue in film history um but man this film was just it was just so good every every aspect of the film was just amazing just a pure pure crime film noir neo noir whatever label you want to stick on it just just an absolute masterpiece of the film jack nicholson was incredible um the direction by redacted was awesome um and yeah chinatown if you somehow never seen it if you're like me and you just never had a chance to watch it anywhere it's on the criterion channel as of as of we're recording and release date watch it because it's just incredible I did. I do think it's interesting. One thing I always find interesting about Chinatown is how much of a mainstream appeal it has, because like you said, Adam, it's incredibly dark and bleak. And you'd almost feel like, how did this get such mainstream success? Obviously, it's because everything's so well done in it. But like, and honestly, it's, it's actually crazy to think about. It wasn't even the darkness that kind of threw me. It's kind of how dense the plot is. Like, this is not like a simple murder mystery detective trying to find a murderer kind of deal. You know, the fact that a film about the distribution of water through the California, you know, desert lands has, is so interesting. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of it's kind of crazy how interesting that the the screenwriter of this film, which is has an incredible script, the script is incredible for this. The, the fact that he was able to make a film so interesting out of such a niche, sort of kind of like. I, I can't even call it nerdy because it's not even like it's just it's just a really it's kind of like a boring subject matter you know water distribution wow yeah it's like you know <laughs> it's like when people go to jail for embezzlement like that's not that interesting yeah you know it's it's kind of like it's just because it's such a basic thing like 
water coming into your home, irrigation. It's such a basic, mundane thing that you would never even, you don't even really think about it on a day-to-day basis. You don't think, where does my water come from? You, nobody really thinks about that on a day-to-day. And the fact that we were able to make a film so interesting surrounding that entire facet was just, yeah, it's, it's just awesome. Joining, uh, joining Mad Max is the, the film's primarily uh, dealing with water distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, Fury Road. <laughs> and then there's films with too much water, like Waterworld, but, you know. <laughs> What are you, IGN? <laughs> Sometimes, some, some people say that Mad Max Fury Road is like the antithesis of Waterworld. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool, so what, what have you guys seen that you want to give a shout out to? Um, um, you want to go first, Chris, or you want me to go? Yeah, I'm happy to go next, so, I, so I, I'll be quick. I'm going to talk about a few things, but I'll make all of them quick. Um, we have uh, interviewed the guy, Kyle, from Utopia Distribution on here before, and he was talking about future releases. And uh, one of the ones we did not talk about, which is unfortunately, speaking of boring things, kind of boringly named, is uh, one of the releases called Martha, A Picture Story. That I don't know what the name of this movie should be, but it should not be that. This movie is awesome. <laughs> like. There's a random woman named Martha Cooper in the 80s in New York City who was trying to make it as a photographer and wound up getting embedded like deep into the culture of graffiti art and wound up capturing this the, 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 the subway trains that had graffiti on them, this really beautiful intricate graffiti before the New York cracked down on graffiti. And her book was published just called Subway Art and it became sort of like this Bible for the next generation of graffiti artists. And then because she was in the world of graffiti, she also then kind of got in in the early days of hip hop. So she has all these still shots of like the, these nascent little like small communities of graffiti and then hip hop uh, and, and then all break dancing as well. And she's just like, and they're all, she kept all of her negatives. So she has like rooms full of just boxes of negatives of, some of the most important like cultural movements from the, that stemmed in the 80s out of New York. Unbelievable woman, super interesting, um, constantly told her whole life she was never a real photographer because she took pictures of like people smiling because real photographers would capture like pain and agony and stuff. So anyways, really interesting lady, really interesting story. Uh, I, I want to talk about this as much as I can. Martha, a picture story, bad name, super good movie. Um, I also want to talk about Fellini's Castanova uh, just quickly. Of, I don't know how this doesn't get brought up more in terms of like Fellini's later movies, or maybe it does and I just missed it. But like this film, he's completely unhinged. <laughs> like, and somehow it works. Like I feel like Fellini's the only person they could go with zero restraints, zero, completely in, uninhibited and somehow it still works. Like it's a really fascinating movie. Um, uh, uh, I forget the main actor now, it'll come to me here in a second. Uh, I, I keep thinking of Donald Pleasance, but it's not him. <laughs> um, the Terrence Stamp? No, 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 no. That, there, there is a film with, with Terrence Stamp and, and Fellini, but um, it, it'll come to me here in a second. Um, but yeah, it's just like, it, it is the story of Casanova, but if you can imagine Fellini telling the story of Casanova and everything is very over the top, very elaborate sets, like big, big choices in acting. 
Um, Donald Sutherland, there we go. Donald yeah, Sutherland. I've just, I've just looked it up. The plot sounds um, interesting. Yeah, it's it's a very, it, it like, they're not naked. There's no nudity in the movie. Or if there is, it's, like, very limited. But it's just constant sex throughout the whole movie. Um, but it's sort of, like, again, done in this very, like, circus kind of clown-oriented way that Fellini would make. Uh, and it's just very unique. I'm not going to say it's, like, I, I liked it. Uh, probably says more about me than than anything else. Um, I really enjoyed it. it uh, and then his follow-up film, Orchestra Rehearsal, just absolutely blew my mind. Like, I'm, it's about an hour, it's just over an hour long. I would say everybody has to watch Orchestra Rehearsal if they want to see a Fellini of what he's capable of doing. Because he just, you, you get to meet these people that are preparing for an orchestra. And then in the last 20 minutes, you somehow see the fall of Western civilization as told in a metaphor. And it completely makes sense and it works and it it's just insane. It totally blew my mind. Um, so I'll stop there other than to say I have now uh, uh, finished, I finally did a, a ranking on uh, uh, for our film club. We're, we're a year in, which is crazy. I can't believe that we, we're 52 weeks in, it's very exciting. Um, and I did see Battle of Algiers. So I'll just say my top five. Uh, Zhao Wu number one, Tempopo number two, Close Up number three, once Upon a Time in the West, number four, um, Bad Love Algiers, five, with nine of the Hutter at six looking in, um, but certainly in the top ten. I suppose we might as well do our top fives as well before we ask Zach about his and the other business. Um, let me see. So number one for me, which is probably unsurprising, Night of the Hunter. Uh, number two, which is, again, not surprising, Chunking Express. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, again, not really surprising for me, is Close Up because it's the only Kurosami that we've done. Uh, number four is Still Walking uh, from Pareda, mm-hmm. which I know you guys didn't overly love um, to the point where we didn't even, we, we kind of we skipped that week for the podcast. I feel bad for skipping that week. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, to be fair, there's not a whole lot you can talk about that film. It's just people talking. Um, and then number five is Tampopo with Zhao Wu just looking in. Like, I could honestly swap Jawu and Tampopo around, like, at any given moment. Yeah. Um, my top five was, same. my number one's the same as Adam's, The Night of the Hunter. Um, number two was Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Number three was Woman in the Dunes. Number four was um, Wolf Hole, which has the best name. Yeah. And then number five was Multiple Maniacs, with The Ascent being the honorable mention. That's awesome. Very, very diverse and different lists. But, um, yeah. Cool. And so what have you seen, Zach, that you want to give a shout-out to? Um, I guess what I'll talk about, I actually just rewatched it. I guess this is about the third or fourth time I've seen it. I've been a big fan of S. Craig Zoller's work uh, since I saw Bone Tomahawk in 2015, which is a cannibalistic Western with Kurt Russell, which I recommend. It's great. It's very brutal. It has probably one of the most brutal like kill scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Which Bisection? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I know about that scene. Kind of. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he got me into a lot of his other work. You know, he, he, of course, before he did that, he wrote novels. I've read several of his of his novels. He's a comic book writer now. Uh, his last film he did was in 2018, which is the one I kind of want to highlight, which is Dragged Across Concrete. And, of course, one thing you'll notice, as Adam did, is uh, he, uh, he spends a lot of time naming his stuff. A lot <laughs> of his stuff is very provocative. Uh, his second film was... Brawl and Cell Block 99, which is obviously a a love letter to Riot and Cell Block 11, Don Siegel, um, which, you know, if you're going to 
kind of pick a couple directors. He kind of, you can tell he grabs a lot of influence from. It's Don Siegel and uh, Sam Peckinpah. You know, he likes this violence. He spends a lot of time on dialogue. Some people would even say a lot of it's like a little bit of purple prose. Um, you know, things are like, so, you know, anytime something be said simple, like stand up or get up, it would be something like get vertical, which is just small things, but it's throughout the whole movie. And I think that could probably annoy some people, but makes it a lot more entertaining because his movies are really long. Like Dragged Cross Concrete is two and a half hours. Oh, wow. um, and it's a pretty simple plot. It's uh, stars Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn as these two cops who get a little rough with a suspect on a drug charge and they're suspended without pay. So they decide that they are going to get um, they are going to rob some bank robbers and, um, you know, they kind of get involved with that. You know, a, a lot of the movie is them just staking out this area, waiting on these people to leave so they can just rob them and get their money. And uh, it's goes into a lot of different directions. It's incredibly violent. It's uh, like I said, there's a lot of slow moments. It's a lot of the stakeout stuff, but Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn's chemistry is great. Um, you know, I think Zoller's really used um, Vince Vaughn insanely well using like his huge stature and how built the guy is. Um, you know, he's been used in comedy for so much that it's actually really nice to see him play a more intimidating figure in a couple of movies. Um, but it's got this real noir feel to it. So Adam, I mean, I know the, the runtime is probably a little bit of a killer for you, but it look it's a beautiful looking movie. It's, it's, it's it has a lot of dark. It has a lot of those elements to it. And I just highly recommend it for people who haven't checked out really any of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I looked them up. Obviously I knew about bone Tomahawk and I kind of looked them up a bit, obviously after you put up your review of drag across concrete as well on the website, which if you're listening and you don't know our website, it's they live by film.com. Um, but yeah, he sounds like a super interesting filmmaker. I, I, I am interested in exploring his work and maybe if I can find some time, I'll watch a, one of his two and a half hour pictures. Yeah. He, um, dragged across concrete just to give like, I'll, I'll make this short. It's a little bit of a history. It was two hours and 35 minutes and it was supposed to be his first film to get a wide distribution, but he had final cut safe with Lionsgate and Lionsgate said, make this movie two hours or we're not giving it a wide release. And he's like, I'm not going to cut it. And they gave him, they gave him a very limited release and a DVD run. And that's it. I kind of, I respect that. I I respect him for doing that. You know, stay, stay true to yourself. It's like, you see a lot of filmmakers, they don't do that. And then they regret it 20 years later. And they put out director's cuts and final cuts. (coughs) Ridley Scott. Um, Yeah, and I think it helped that he didn't start filmmaking until he was in his 40s. So I think he has that confidence that a lot of people who were 20 are like, it's getting a wide release. Uh, What opportunities am I going to have? I suppose he's kind of thinking, it's like, I'm just happy to be here. You know, I'm just going to do it my way. You know, I'm happy to make, I'm going to be, I'm making movies. You know, this is cool. Uh, I'm just going to do it my way, which, yeah, I, I massively respect that. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. You can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.